0: Hello. You can hear me? Oh, good. It's good morning. Uh, let me. I just want to echo Josh's welcome. If you are new or newish to Wild Street, it's so good to have you here. Um, we love that you're here. Um, regulars, it's good to have you guys here too. It's awesome. Let me just pull this up. Uh, if you if you weren't here last week, uh, we're doing two weeks in the Psalms. Last week we did a summer of Lament. It was um, beautiful, but it was really heavy. And this week we're going to do uh, a psalm of praise. Um, so it's a little bit of a lighter psalm in some ways. Um, but the, the idea is that actually the Christian faith, um, it, trusting God, what He says to us from His Word, it doesn't just cover the normal of life. It covers um, our emotions when we're in the valley full of suffering and pain, and it covers our emotions. Um, and speaks to us when we're on the mountaintop full of praise and joy. Um, so how about we pray now? I don't know what your week's look like, but um, whatever your week has looked like, um, we're going to hear from God this morning about um, his worthiness, um, his, his innateness that we ought praise him. So uh, what a joy. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it shows us who you are. Thank you that in it we see your love for us so clearly. Uh, You're worth praising, God. Set our hearts aflame this morning. Remind us of who you are. Help us to lift our eyes up and praise you. Amen. Okay, well, to be human is to worship. That's what it is to be human. See, each of us in our lives, we've got things that we give the highest value to, things that we um, look forward to, that we crave, that we desire, that we base our lives around. Um, it's just kind of this version of the good life that each of us has, whether it's you know being um, having a great family with children and siblings and, and everyone that kind of um, gets on well together, and, and that's our version of the good life. Or it might be um, work. Having a job that 's fulfilling um, that you can find joy in it 's not boring or menial, but not too much work right We want us to be able to enjoy our weekends and our nights and our hobbies. Um, the good life you know could look like work. Um, but whatever it looks like, we build our values and our habits around this version of the good life, um, and so over time we 've become like the things that we value. You see, if you if you really value family, you'll always put family first. You'll, you'll spend your time. You'll invest in your family. And so you'll become more like a person who values family. Um, our lives play out like a song, a worship song of the things that we love, the things that we give our time to and we value. And so each of us has this song that we sing with our lives. Uh, and And I want to just contrast two songs this morning. There's the song that our culture sings and the song that we see here, He says, each of us have our own way of realizing our humanity. And it's important to find out and live out one's own without surrendering or conforming to any outside model imposed on us, society or other generations or religions or politics. Do you see what he's saying there? Um, Don't let anyone else tell you how to be you because Your life's actually all about the self, it's about who you are. Um, And for our society, we're good at this, aren't we, worshipping and praising ourselves. See, we've decided that actually we're the ones who get to define identity and purpose and meaning in our lives. Um, We don't want anyone else to tell us what to be, we love being at the centre. That's the song our culture sings. If you sing that song, you know, shopping centers, they'll become your place of worship because you go there to um, be fulfilled, to become the best version of yourself. Isn't that what shops are trying to sell you? A better version of your own life. Um, Holidays become your sacraments. You know, things like baptism, which you look back to to remind yourself and give you hope. Actually, holidays become that. You know, what do we hear? You know, in three weeks, I've got a holiday coming. I've just got to complete the grind at work until I get to go, you know, over to Bali or wherever you're going to go. Um, And Instagram, or maybe the Bible, if you're a little bit, I'm sorry, Instagram or the newspaper, if you're a little bit older, becomes our Bible. Um, We go there to find out how to think, how to live, how to act, what to say, um, the right way to live. See, our culture is religious. Not that it wants you to believe certain things, although I think more and more our culture does want that, but it's religious in that it shapes what we love. Uh, I saw an Instagram post the other day, and it said this. It said, if it doesn't bring you uh, income, inspiration, or an orgasm, you need to cut it out of your life. Right? That's, that's the world. That's the song that our culture sings. It's completely focused on ourselves. Uh, it's not, our culture's not neutral. It's forming us. It's shaping us. And friends, that's why we need the Psalms, particularly Psalms of praise, because the Psalms teach us a different song, a song about one who is far more worthy. Uh, The Psalms teach us to kind of lift our eyes up, to get our, our lives out of just focusing on ourselves and point us towards God to model how and why we praise him. to give us the content of that praise. And so that's my goal this morning is to lift up our eyes and show us that God is worthy of praising. He's more worthy than us of living for. Uh, And I'm going to do it. I've got one observation about praise, which is that we need help to praise God. And then three points to help us get our praise on, to lift our eyes up and show us the God that's uh, worthy of all our worship. And they are that the content of our praise is God's gifts, his saving work, and ultimately his character. That's the first one. Second one, uh, we praise the God who knows us and forgives us in his steadfast love. And the third one, that actually healthy fear is the start of praising the Lord. That's where we're going. Uh, If you don't leave here this morning wanting to praise God more, I haven't done my job. That's that's what our goal is this morning, uh, that we might see him and praise him. So first, we need help to praise God. Pick it up with me there in verse 1. This is a psalm of David, and David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Do you see what David's doing here in verses 1 and 2? Kind of, he's doing self-talk. He's talking to himself. He's saying, you know, self, bless the Lord. His inner self, this kind of, this oh my soul, he's talking about his inner being there. And he's encouraging himself to praise God. See, this psalm starts with bless the Lord. It ends with bless the Lord. It's a psalm all about praising God and gratitude to him. And David, he needs to remind himself to bless the Lord, to not forget uh, his benefits to him. So what does he do? He goes on to list all the benefits. Look at verse three, he says, this is the God who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. He lists all the gifts that come from God. Forgiveness, healing, redemption, steadfast love, you know, come out of the pit. He's satisfied. He's renewed. David, more than anyone, knows how much he needs God's gift, doesn't he? So if you know the story of David, you'll know that um, he committed adultery with another woman, Bathsheba, and then um, sent her husband away to be killed so that he could have her as his own. He's a man who knows that he needs forgiveness from God. So the pit here is this image of death. David knows that um, what he did in his life, he deserved death as punishment. But rather than death, death, what do we see that he gets? Forgiveness, mercy, and love. It's amazing. And so he praises God. Uh, God satisfies him so that he feels like a new man. Um, David uses the illustration of the eagle to show us that. And um, here's a quick little tip about reading poetry. Uh, I'm not your English teacher, but um, as you read poetry, when you see images like this, you know, it renews me like an eagle, um, don't just read over it. Stop. Pause. What is the image trying to do for you? And even more, don't just understand it, but then do the work of saying, how does it make me feel? What is this, what is this shape in my understanding of the psalm? See, eagles are constantly molting their feathers over their lifetime, um, when they, you know, they fly, when they lose one feather on one side, they lose another one on the other side so that they just kind of go out of balance and careen down off a cliff or something. Um, eagles are constantly being, going through this process of renewal. And David says, God's love is like that in my life. I'm constantly being renewed by him. It's beautiful, isn't it? He reminds himself of all that the Lord has done to him. And in doing so, he reminds himself of who God is how good he is. See, when my wife and I were dating, um, I was on the Central Coast, she was down in Wollongong, and we were dating long distance for a, you know, a little while. Um, and dating long distance, I don't know if you've done that before, but lots of calling, lots of texting, maybe you, you know your partner's gone overseas on a work trip or something. Um, it's good, but it's not as good as being in person, is it? It, it starts to get old, you can start to ask the question, oh, do we really love each other? Do we have that spark? Um, And I had to remind myself, yeah, we do. We do love each other. We are great together. Uh, I had to remind myself of how good she was. And that's kind of what David's saying here. We need to remind ourselves of God's goodness. We need to preach a sermon to ourselves. See, that's what he does. He reminds himself of God's goodness. Uh, See, our minds, we know it. If you you know God, you know how good he is. But sometimes our hearts, they can forget it. Uh, How do you go about reminding yourself to praise God? Oh, I try and do it in two ways. So in the morning, I, when I read my Bible, I try and journal a little bit and just something that I've learned about God, something worth praising him, worth being grateful for, and I just try and write something down every morning. And then at dinner time, my, my family, we ask the question, what are you thankful for today? Uh, We've got a three-year-old, and he often says, you know, going down the slide or seeing a friend or going to the park or something like that, um, you know, they're not huge, big things, but we're Trying to do this process of reminding ourselves to be grateful. Uh, How do you go about doing it in your life? Maybe it's something to think about. Maybe you could do a gratitude board. Or find a friend and say, hey, let's text each other once a week and just say something we're grateful for. Or make a playlist on Spotify with some of your favorite worship songs and just kind of put it on every now and then to remind yourself. Uh, But whatever other things it looks like, it's got to look like being here together doesn't it, at church? Uh, here's the central way that we come to hear from God, sing his praises, remind each other of who he is, and encourage each other to love him and trust him. Um, make sure you get here to church so you can do this work of reminding yourself how good God is. That's the first one. We need help to praise God. Um, and so here's the, here's the three things that will help us praise him. Firstly, the content of our praise is God's gifts, his saving work, and his character. Uh, See, David, he goes back to Israel's story. Pick it up with me in verse 6. The Lord who works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. You can picture here, can't you, Israel captive in Egypt as slaves to the Egyptians. Verse 7, he made his ways known to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. See, you can picture here the the mighty acts of God, the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the feeding of the people in the desert, uh, God's acts to save his people. But notice here, what's at the heart of David's praise? What's at the heart of the content of what he says? Verse 8, it's not who God is. Sorry, it's not what God does, but it's who God is. See it there with me in verse 8. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. See, it's who he is that David calls to mind at the center of his praise. And this, this um, verse here is from Exodus 34. It's the most quoted verse in the whole Old Testament. Um, time and time again, um, the prophets go back to it. They, they do it in numbers. They, the Psalms quote it four or five times. To who God is that's at the center of the praise. See, Israel, let me give you the context. Israel have been rescued by God from, the, uh, from Egypt, and they go and they camp outside this mountain, and Moses goes up the mountain to, to meet with God, to hear from God. And while he's up there, um, what do the people do? If you know this story, you know, they do the unthinkable. They say, Oh, well, Moses up there speaking with God on the mountain. What should we do? Let's melt all our gold together and fold into a calf and worship it. Like, I mean, whose idea was that? But that's what they do. And so Moses, after that, he comes down and God's so angry with the people. And Moses says, God, forgive us. And God does. And, and Moses says, God, please show me your glory. I need to know that even though we've sinned against you, that you're still with us that you're for us. Show us your glory. I need to know that you're God. Now, in that moment, what would you do if you were God? What would you show Moses? Would you show him the, the way you created the stars and the planets and all things of the word? Would you, would you parade before him all these different animals, you know, giraffes and, and hippos and majestic animals to show how powerful you are to make those? Would you show your thundering judgment on evil and sin? What does God do? Exodus 34 verse 6, he passes before Moses and he says this quote that we have. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. See, God's glory, his weightiness, the essence of who he is, the thing that makes him worth praising and loving and living for, his glory is that he's merciful and gracious it's that he's abounding in steadfast love and slow to anger. That's what makes him worthy of our praise, because at his core, he's a God of love, a God of mercy, and a God of grace to his people. The Lord is slow to anger. The kind of the, the phrase here in Hebrew is um, literally long nostriled. Right? So picture with me a boar, um, a bull you know, pouring the ground, getting ready to charge, nostrils flared. See, that would be short-nosed. But God's not like that. He's long-nosed towards us. His disposition towards us is one of mercy and love. Uh, His character, who he is at his innermost being, is a God who is slow to anger and who abounds in love. And this love is not any old kind of love, steadfast love. This phrase here, it's, this kind of, it's committed love. It's um, this phrase that describes not just how God acts towards his people, but actually who he is towards his people, who he is in general. Um, you could say instead of steadfast love, another way that you could say this is covenant love, his commitment to love. See, God is a God of covenant love. And David praises God because he looks back into Israel's history and remembers that. He remembers in verse 9 that even though God was angry at Sinai, he won't be angry forever. Or verse 10, even though he did punish the people, but that he doesn't always deal with them according to their sins. He remembers back to Israel's history. Isn't that a God worth praising? A God who acts like that? A God who is a God of steadfast love? See, C.S. Lewis, when he's talking about praising God, uh, he says that to be fully human is to praise God. It's to stop being asleep and to wake up and see who he is. He puts it like this. It's going to come up on the slide. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight them even more than if we just knew what he did but didn't praise him. Like um, fans singing their team songs. 60,000 fans in a footy stadium after their team's got the win. What are they doing? They're singing their praises to their team. They're enjoying the moment of glory. Like um, after you, know, you go for a really good surf, what do you need to go and do then? You know, tell everyone how good your surf is. It kind of it completes the circle of, of enjoyment for us. See, to enjoy fully is to praise. It's to glorify, and that's what David does to God. He remembers God's gifts, His saving work, but ultimately, who God is, and he praises Him. Isn't that a God worth praising? Isn't that the God that we also get to praise? Doesn't that make you want to praise Him as you remember back? his gifts to you, the way that he's saved you, and ultimately who he is, the God that deals with you. Second point. The third point is uh, we praise the God who knows us, who loves us, and who forgives us in his steadfast love. See, in verses 11 to 14, David gives us three comparisons and then an assertion about the love of God, which he's just highlighted from Israel's history. He's trying to capture for us who God is, how much he loves us. Verse 11, his love is as high as the heavens are above the earth. Verse 12, he removes our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Do you get this as poetic language? See, how far is the east from the west? It's immeasurable, isn't it? It's, it's uncalculable how wide that gap is. That's the point. God's love for us fills all of time and space. It spans across his universe from east to west. In verse 13, we get another comparison. His compassion to us is like the compassion of a father with children. He treats us like a father treats his kids. Isn't that a beautiful image? So here's my second quick tip about uh, reading poetry in the Psalms. As you go through not just this psalm, but every psalm as you read them, um, Hebrew poetry works not based on rhyme, which you know our version is in English, so we wouldn't get the rhyme anyway. Uh, it doesn't work on rhyme, but primarily on comparison. Um, this is called parallelism, and and note how in this psalm, I don't know if the, I've got a different Bible, but your Bible might even be every second line's kind of indented in, in your Bible. I'm not sure. Anyone want to yell out, is it indented? Yeah, it is. Good. Okay. Well, that's to kind of help you understand the parallelism of the poetry. Um, see, when you see these lines that seem to kind of say the same thing, don't just kind of go, oh, well... It, we could just get rid of half the lines and just have the same content. No, no, slow down and see what the relationship between the lines is. How do they convey meaning? How do they help us understand tone of the passage? Um, uh, is the line synonymous? Is it just repeating the same thing as the line above it? Or does it contrast, you know this line or this kind of set of lines with the lines above? Does it contrast? We get that in 15 and 16 and 17, don't we? Um, God's love is not like grass. It's not like the flowers of the field. It's everlasting. Um, Or does it build? Does it intensify the the line or the set of lines? Does the next one kind of build on that idea? Slow down when we're reading poetry. Just kind of think about how how are the lines relating to each other? Three assertions about God's love. As high as the heavens are above the earth. As far as east is from west, like a father loves his children. Why? For he knows our frame. Verse 14, he remembers that we are dust. See, parents, don't they know everything about their children, all their uh, good qualities, but also their bad? Uh, Their weaknesses, their habitual sins, their character flaws, the areas that you want to see them grow in. If you're a parent, you'll know this, and your parents also knew it about you. None of us is perfect. But a great parent loves their child regardless of those things. In fact, the more that as a parent you see the weaknesses and flaws in your child, isn't it the more your heart goes out to them to meet them in love where they're at, to care for them, to want to see them grow? See, that's God with us. Um, You know, we we act according to who our kids are, don't we? So imagine with me you've got a six-year-old. Uh, and a 17-year-old, and your six-year-old goes to the park right next to your house and takes their bike and then forgets about their bike, and and, and you actually you go back to the park to get it and it's been stolen. Now, the six-year-old is just devastated. They're, it's their Christmas present. They're so upset. You don't speak harshly with them and come in and punish them, do you? Of course not. They, you know, they're, just, they're a six-year-old. They, you know, they've made that mistake. That's... You treat them according to who they are. But if your 17-year-old asked to borrow your car, drives it to a house party, forgets to lock it and leaves the keys in the ignition and it gets stolen, what would you do then? Well, you, you might give them the six-year-old's bike, right? Like um, You'd treat them differently, wouldn't you, a six-year-old and a 17-year-old? See, God knows us more intimately than any parent ever could know a child. And yet he loves us immeasurably. Don't we see that? He shows so much compassion to us. Don't deal harshly with yourself. God doesn't deal harshly with you. He shows you compassion in your frailty. He knows how you're formed. He knows your frame. The metaphor there is um, that frame word is often used in pottery. He made you. He knows what you're made of. He knows how frail you are. Don't treat yourself that way because God doesn't treat you that way. So I'm aware this morning here that not all of us have fathers like that. Some of us have had really terrible fathers, fathers that haven't acted like that. But even there, we, our instinct is to know that that's not what a father should be. A father should be like this, like God, a compassionate father. That's how he acts to us, full of compassion. Compassion. See, the psalm reminds us that our lives are fragile, they're short, they're like grass in a field, like a flower, a a beautiful flower. The wind blows, the flower flies away, and there's not even a trace that it ever existed. That's our lives in the big scheme of things. But compared to that, verse 17, God's steadfast love is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him, his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commands. See, God is a God of covenant love. And he made this covenant with his people Israel. So Moses went up the mountain and he heard from God. And God gave them some commands to keep. We see it there in verse 17. The ones who keep his covenant remember his commands. And he said, if you guys keep my commands, then I will bless you. You will be my people and I will be your God. I'll show you covenant love. If you listen to me and hold on to me, things will go well for you in the world. But he says, if you don't listen to me, if you disobey me, then I won't bless you. In fact, I'll curse you. Things won't go well for you. And if you know anything of the story of the Old Testament, it's a series of stories that show us repeatedly that Israel don't keep they're half of the covenant. They don't trust God. They don't obey Him. They don't listen to Him. And they don't worship Him. Time and time again, they fail to do their bit. The golden calf was just the start of the rest of their history. And the paradox of the Old Testament is even though God's covenant blessings were conditional, I'll be your God if you're my people, that even within that covenant, there was still this unconditional promise. Of God's love to them, that even though they failed, God still loved them, that somehow God wouldn't treat them as as their sins deserved. See, how can David say with confidence that God won't deal with him according to his sins? That's not the covenant. He can say it because he knows that God is a God of steadfast love. He can say it because this is a Jesus song. This is a psalm that points forward to Jesus. It's it's shadowy. It's got expectations. But it points forward to a God who gives us a new covenant. See, in Jesus, we see what David could only see in part. We understand that exactly how it is that God could not deal with us as our sins deserve, according to those who trust his covenant promise. So we see it in Romans 5.8. It's going to come up on the screen. God says this, but God showed his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Just like Israel, we too failed to listen to God, to obey him, to love him like we should. But see what God does in his love, his covenant love for us. While we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. If we're trusting in Jesus, Christ takes our punishment. See, he's the one who kept the covenant. He's the one who deserved all the blessings of God in the Old Testament. He's the one who remembered to keep all of God's commands. But he dies in our place so that God can give us the blessings that he deserved. See, David could only speak of this in shadow. He could only speak of it with this this hope against hope that even though we haven't lived up to God's covenant, that we know he's a God of love. But we know it in full if our trust is in Christ, don't we? So much more than David, we have room to praise God from this psalm. See, when we pray this psalm, when we're reminded of these truths, we almost pray it more clearly than David could. We know its original meaning now even more than David. See, in Jesus, the God who knows us intimately forgives us out of his steadfast love. He forgives us despite our sin. Isn't that a God worth praising? Think about your last 24 hours, your last week. You know your own frailty. You know your sin. You know all the times you've stuffed up. God knows them too, and yet he is a God He forgives you if your trust is in Jesus. That's a God worth praising, isn't it? Here's the fourth one, last point. A healthy fear of the Lord is key to praise. See, David's clear about this throughout the psalm, isn't he? I don't know if you picked it up as we went through. Uh, In verse 11, we see, So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 13, the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. Verse 17, the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Now, this seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Does that strike you as a little bit odd? Um, Hearing a psalm about the God who loves you, who shows abounding, steadfast, compassionate love, full of mercy and grace. Why do we need to fear a God like that? Why do we fear him? Here's my take. Healthy fear of the Lord means lifting up our eyes to see that life's not all about me, about us. There's a God much bigger than us, a God who made us, who sits over us, who we owe something to. See, our culture, doesn't it just say that Life is just the um, product of random evolutionary chance. And if that's all life is, then of course I'd be at the center of it. I'm at the center of my own random evolutionary journey to do what I want. But here we see that actually fear of the Lord means that knowing we're created by a God of such immense power and scale, that he did it by a word. To the vastness of all things that God has made, the complexity of life, It's all made by him. We're not the result of just random chance. Proverbs 9 tells us that fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And in this case, wisdom is living well in God's world. And fearing the Lord here means seeing who he is, what he's done, and realizing that this is a God who towers over us. This is a God more powerful than we could ever imagine. See, the right choice when faced with this God, the God of the Bible, is to fear him and to praise him for who he is. That's exactly what the psalm does. See, in verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. See, God's kingdom is over everything. In verse 20, David calls on the angels to bless the Lord, God's mighty ones. In verse 21, it's God's hosts, or another way that you could say that is um, the armies of the Lord. Uh, it says that his ministers, he's not talking about, you know, Joshua, or Rod, or Kurt, or anyone. He's talking about his armies, his heavenly hosts, who are more numerable than you could ever count. They're to bless him. And in verse 22, the capstone verse, bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. See, when faced with a God of that immensity, of that scale, the right response is fear, not kind of outright terror, but a deep awareness of who he is, his majesty, his power, his otherness. He's God. We're just his creatures. We're like the grass. We're like the flowers of the fields. Here is a God of such scale and power. This is a God that we owe something to. We're bound by a God who our proper response to when we see who he is, is to bow the knee and submit to him, to praise him. See, in the 16th century, there was a moment called the Copernican Revolution. Anyone have heard of a guy called Nicholas Copernicus. Okay, a few people, maybe some of the nerds. No, just kidding. He's he's a mathematician, a scientist, uh, and he, up until that point, um, the world was thought to be at the center of the universe, and the sun and all the other planets kind of revolved around the world. right? Have we got it on screen? I think we've got a a little. We'll come up in a second. Um, And he, using maths and science, kind of worked out, no, no, we're not at the center. The sun is at the center. He, and it just it cha- it, you know, it changed everything. It changed the way we thought about the universe. It changed the way we thought about maths and science and everything in our world so that it became known as the Copernican revolution. See, we need a Copernican revolution in our lives. Healthy fear of God means realizing that we aren't at the center of our own lives. There is one that has majesty and power and is worthy of all praise, and he's the one at the center. He's the one worth bowing the knee to. And living for. When we see his immense scope and scale, isn't that what we ought to do? But the God who we fear is also the God who we cling to in safety. See, the God who knows all things is the God who knows your frame. He knows your fragility. He knows how you're formed. The God who flung the stars into the skies is the God who separated your sins as far as east is from west. The God who towers over us with immense might and power of a scale that we can't even imagine is the God who comes to us with compassion, intimate, like a father. He knows us deeply and loves us. See, that's the God we cling to. We fear Him, but we fear Him with complete safety. With that God, the God of the Bible, I'm completely safe. Nothing can touch me. Nothing can separate me from his love because we see his complete scale for us, his power as he loves us. If I'm in him, if I fear him, if I trust him, I'm safe. Do you know that God? Do you know the God of the Bible? If you do, how would you know you know him? It will be because you have bowed the knee. You've acknowledged your sin and you've thrown yourself on his mercy for forgiveness. You've turned to put your trust in Jesus, the one who makes right your relationship with God so that he won't treat you according to your sins. See, that's a God that's worth praising, isn't it? What a joy to live for that God, to praise that God, to have that God at the center of our lives, not ourselves. See, that's the song that the psalm teaches us to sing, a song of a God who's so worth our praise. And it's a far better song than the song that our culture sings, isn't it? That actually, how much more worthy is he to praise than ourselves? See Psalm Psalm 103 verse 22. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Haven't we seen this morning how worthy he is of our praise? Won't you join in line with all of creation, joining in singing that song, giving your life as a life of praise, a life of a a song of his worthiness for you, what he's done, his gifts, his saving works, and ultimately who he is. That's my prayer. Let's pray that together. Father God, you're so worthy of praise. When we see your scale and majesty, we're just in awe of you. And yet to know that you in all of your power treat us like your children. You come to us in love. You, don't forg- you forgive us of our sins. You don't treat us according to them because of Jesus. You're a God who we want to praise, who we want to live for, who we want to center our lives on. Help us to do that together as your community. Amen.